Yeah, I'm really excited for what God has to say to us. And I think it was Karl Barth, the uh, 20th century Swiss theologian, arguably the greatest, some would say, the greatest theologian of the last century, who said that a pastor must be found with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And so it was that uh, on Wednesday I was sitting at my desk with my Bible open in preparation for this sermon on the internet, open to the Daily Star website. (laughs) Don't judge. (laughs) And I came across a story involving a man uh, called Steve Fletcher. Any of you heard of Steve? I don't know if Steve's here today. Who predicts, who makes it his sort of life's work to predict the end of the world. And uh, here's just an excerpt from the, uh, from the story as I read it in the Daily Star this last Wednesday. Said this in the Daily Star, The rapture is, is an event many Christians believe marks the return of the Son of God. And all the believers will disappear from earth to heaven in the twinkling of an eye. By the way, I'm not teaching this. I'm just reflecting what was in the story. And Steve Fletcher, who monitors events that could signal the end of mankind, believes the rapture starts today, last Wednesday. (laughs) He said, and I quote, Time is up and all hell breaks loose after June the 21st, 2018. And he explained a number of factors that allowed him to pinpoint the end of times, which coincides with summer solstice. The ending of spring and the starting of summer. Writing on his website, he said, again, still quoting, many people have had dreams and visions that the rapture will occur shortly after the death of Billy Graham. Billy Graham passed away this year on the same day as Moses, which is February the 21st. I mean, how do we know when Moses died? (laughs) I don't know. That's exactly four months or 120 days before June the 21st. Pat's nodding. She's like, yeah, it is. That ties in with the 120 years being the age that Moses was when he died. Very significant number, that, 120. It's a multiple of 12. We have the 12 disciples and the 12 stars of Revelation 12. I'm not making this up. He also said, and this is my favorite bit, there were some other significant calculations involving June the 21st. For example, from August the 21st, 2017, which was the solar eclipse, is exactly 10 months. From Stephen Hawking's death, no idea why that's relevant, it was 99 days, 99 days, and this is my favourite one, from the royal wedding is 33 days. Prince Harry is 33. And 33 was the age that Jesus was when he was uh, resurrected. Final one. The movie Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom premieres June the 22nd. 2018, in the rapture, when we go up to heaven, the devil and his angels are cast down to earth. Okay, coincidence, says Mr. Steve Fletcher, I think not. (laughs) So if you are still here, uh, you weren't raptured on Wednesday. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Now, all a bit of fun, but it does introduce our subject today. As we bring to a close the series we've been in on the basics of the Christian faith. Now, we haven't said uh, anywhere near all that could be said on the essentials of what it means to be a, be a follower of Jesus. In fact, we've just introduced some, what we believe to be some key concepts. Though We haven't offered the last word, but hopefully we are, we've offered some of the beginning, the first words. And really, this, this stuff takes a lifetime 
to explore and we explore it by following Jesus and that's what we've said all along. But we wouldn't have done justice to the story as we've presented it and we have presented it as a story, a narrative in which we find our place. We wouldn't have done justice to the story unless we talk about the end of the story. And that's the question I want to ask today. How does the story end? And even as I begin, even as I began this week, in fact I've been thinking about this particular sermon for a number of weeks, even as I begin and, and began to think about it, I, I recognize something about even my own preaching. And that's that I've spent a huge amount of time in my preaching talking about the other, the other acts in the drama. The, maybe one of the first four, uh, first three of the four acts, creation. I spent a huge amount of time in my preaching talking about creation. I spent a lot of time talking and working out the consequences of the fall uh, where peace with God, the shalom that God intended for us was disturbed by man, man's disobedience. I've spent some good amount of time talking about rescue and how the rescue climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But really I've talked very little, if ever, on the final restoration where God finally puts everything to rights. And I don't just think that's me. I think we as the church think far less about what's to come than what we're doing right now. We look back to the work of Jesus, wonderful as it is, essential as that is, much more than we look ahead to him completing what he's begun. And I began to reflect on why that might be personally and even for us. And I think there are a number of reasons. So firstly, I think we're afraid of what might be termed speculation. We're afraid, afraid of speculating, of, of guesswork. We don't know exactly how it's all going to end. Let's be honest. Images are used in the Bible. It isn't pinpoint precision textbook stuff. And when we read texts like Thessalonians about being caught up in the air, it just feels a bit crazy. And so we'd rather stay rooted on the floor with our feet on the ground, dealing with flesh and blood stuff that we can understand and maybe that we can even explain to our friends. We don't want to get involved in speculation like Steve Fletcher. We're embarrassed of it if we're honest, aren't we? I think as well there's a cultural thing going on and I think the church gets caught up in it and the cultural framework is clearly in our culture of materialism talked about this before, the notion that uh, you can only consider something to be real if you, can, um, if you can see it or touch it or taste it. In other words, if you can apprehend it with one of the five senses. And it's difficult when we talk about the end of the world, about the return of Jesus, because we're dealing with a different kind of reality. What I want to say today is that that reality is no less real. In fact, that it is more real. And when we're apprehending heaven, we're talking about things which are more, more real than the things even in front of us. We're dealing with realities which are weighty. Upon which these earthly realities depend for their very existence. I think thirdly and finally, the fear is that we would be the kinds of people caricatured by the world as Christians stuck with their heads in the clouds. You've heard that phrase, that we would be so heavenly minded, we would be of no earthly use. And who wants a Christian who is of no earthly use? But I'm with C.S. Lewis on this. I think that there's a false 
dichotomy here. I think that actually the reverse is true. This is what Lewis says on the matter in Mere Christianity. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Today, I want to encourage us to aim at heaven. And here's why. Because we are starved of hope. Our culture is starved of hope. Our churches are starved of hope. The one thing we are to have that marks us out is hope. We are a people of hope. I walked around this building with Sir John Peace a little while ago, the Lord Lieutenant. Amy and I sat over there with him on a, a little table. He, he's a sir, folks. So I was sort of trembling before he arrived and we were so honored, we were honored to meet him. He's a friend of a friend and he set up the meetings, a wonderful, wonderful man. And he came and, and we did our best to impress him, didn't we, love? We had our best coffee on. We made sure it was perfect temperature. Um, I, I, I wore my dog collar. <laughs> I think they call that in the trade power dressing. <laughs> um, uh, we were here early. He was here late. <laughs> and, and, and he asked us, so what's the vision? What's the, what, what are you here for? And I just went for it. I, and Amy was just gently nodding and smiling at me as if I knew what I was talking about. And he stopped me after a while. <laughs> he said, just wait. I said, no, the vision is hope. Hope is what this city needs. It's about hope. And something in my heart said, yeah, you're right. This is about hope. Church, this is why we have to aim at heaven. Today, I want to talk about heaven. I want to get your head in the clouds for a little bit. I want us to look at what the ending of the story actually looks like and how it's going to shape us today. And so we begin with Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 4, please do open your Bible. It's going to be on the screen as well, but it's helpful to have it in front of you. And probably, for those of you who are new to the Bible, you need to understand that Paul wrote a series of letters to churches, typically, not always, but typically churches that he himself had planted with a group of uh, friends of his he used to travel around together. And they started these churches, and because they couldn't stay long, usually because they got kicked out, they had to leave other people in charge of the churches. They would raise up elders, and they would move on but Paul wanted to keep in touch these were his spiritual children he cared more for them than anything else or anyone else and so he would write letters emails weren't even invented believe it or not you millennials there was a day before email 
And so Paul kept in touch with his churches through writing letters. People would take them physically to the churches. This probably, of all of the letters in the New Testament, is the first, chronologically speaking. He probably wrote this around AD 50, so around 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what he says in chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Let's keep that on the screen just for a second. The context here at the end of the letter is Paul is addressing a group of people who have become hopeless. And the reason they've become hopeless is because a number of them have begun to die, whether through persecution or just through natural causes. People have begun to die. And for whatever reason, this has thrown them a bit of a curveball. Some say this is because they, they actually expected Jesus to return imminently, straight away. And so this is a little bit of a, a surprise. It's a little bit of a mind bender that Jesus hasn't already come back. Others say that maybe that's not going on. But for whatever reason, they've become surprised and discouraged by the death and the grief of the death of uh, brothers and sisters from among the community. And the reason they're grieving is because they're uninformed. They haven't fully understood about the end of the story. And because of that, they're grieving. And Paul says, no, you are to grieve. You will grieve when people die. It is sad. It is traumatic and tragic whenever anybody dies. It isn't part of what God had planned for his creation. And yet, we in the church, Paul says to his church here in Thessalonica, do not grieve like the rest of the world. We grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We don't grieve in the same way as the world because there is hope. We have a hope. Why is this the case? Well, hope is the reason we grieve differently. What is at the heart of hope in the New Testament? What we find at the heart of Christian hope throughout the New Testament is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus principally as a Christian doctrine that sits as a cornerstone in the New Testament, giving people hope in trial, assuring us of God's good future. Take a look at this with me. Uh, in verse 14, for we believe, Paul says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with him, bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Falling asleep is a, obviously a euphemism, means dying. Uh, these aren't people who are just falling asleep in the middle of church. Bless you if you are falling asleep in the middle of church. But it's not referring to you. So Paul is saying, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The cornerstone of our thinking about death and resurrection of hope of heaven is the resurrection of Jesus. So what about the resurrection? What's all that about? What is it all about? And here I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, leave a finger in uh, 1 Thessalonians and move to 1 Corinthians if you dare. We'll have it on the screen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 20, he says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's that phrase again. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's the resurrection all about? Well, here we have Paul talking about the resurrection in detail throughout this whole chapter in 1 Corinthians. And the word he uses here, here is first fruits. I think it's a really interesting concept. Uh, in the original language, 
Uh, Apache is the word, and it literally means uh, the beginning of something or the kickoff. And I kind of like that idea because, you know, we're in the World Cup season, aren't we? And we're about to see our beloved England. Victorious, we say in faith over Paraguay in just an hour or so. Seeing a few uh, uh, England shirts just being uh, presented this morning. It's about, it's a kickoff. So Paul is almost saying, go with me here, folks. Just trying to contextualize this for our century. It's a bit, he's, a, he's almost saying that this is the, that the resurrection is the opening ceremony. Only it's just much better than any opening ceremony. Aren't they always awful? The resurrection is the opening ceremony. It's what kicks off. And it's a, it's a foretaste of what's to come. Does that make sense? That's what the resurrection of Jesus is. Because what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus is to show us the final destiny of all creation. And the destiny of every follower of Jesus is resurrection. Get your head in those clouds. Not some disembodied bliss in which we float around with harps or something similar, which sounds Boring. We're talking about, as Belinda Carlisle said, heaven on earth. This is about heaven here and now. Jesus returning with us. We being raised with him. We'll come to that in a minute. And what Christ has done is to show us the first fruits. He is the first fruits. We go on. Uh, Paul says, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, referring to the fall, so in Christ all will be made alive but each in turn Christ the first fruits then when he comes those who belong to him Paul is saying here that we can have confidence that what God has done for Jesus he will one day do for every follower of Jesus so in Christ all will be made alive all being those who belong to Jesus this is where the story is headed This is where it goes. And then Paul says, then the end will come. Verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He must reign. The story ends with the king enthroned, fully and finally, seated on his throne with every power and dominion destroyed, everything subject to Jesus. Totalitarian rule. Which sounds scary, except when Jesus is on the throne, there's nothing to fear. We're talking about peace. We're talking about life. We're talking about hope. We're talking about love. We're talking about all of creation, not just being shot through, but being filled with the glory of God. This is God's good future. How exactly will this take place? Well, back to 1 Thessalonians 4. And what we're given is images. And I need to say that because a lot of damage, I think, is done around this kind of thinking when we, when we don't understand that what Paul is dealing with here and giving us is images. And, you know, we use images all the time, don't we, to describe the, the indescribable. 
You know, we might say, if you're a sports fan, back to the World Cup, contextualizing, tick. We might say that Ronaldo's free kick against Spain was like a thunderbolt. Now, was it actually like a thunderbolt? No, it wasn't. It was a man kicking a ball. We might say, I don't know if there are any Australian cricket fans here, that England's innings at Trent Bridge just the other week, I was there. It was like fireworks going off. Now, obviously, it wasn't like fireworks going off. You know, Jason Roy's batting was incredible. Alex Hales did a job. I thought Owen Morgan actually was, if anything, the most impressive, even though he only scored about 60. Did it in double time. But the point is we're using imagery to explain the unexplainable, to go beyond what's explainable. Simply scientists do it. The creation, when the world began, it was like a big bang. We use images. We're we're familiar with the use of imagery. And what Paul is doing here is to use images like that. He says this, all who are left to the coming of the Lord. Next one. Next slide if we can. I'll read it. Here we go. There we go. We're there. Okay, so according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. The first image is of descent, of God coming down from heaven, of Jesus returning, coming from heaven. And so we're, we're hazy about the exact details, but what we're told very clearly, and I have got the slides out of order, sorry Herb, is firstly, we know factually, given to us by God, we know in faith that Jesus will come again. There's the image here of arrival, of God showing up in the person of Jesus. That's the first thing that we stand assured of when we read the New Testament. And the word there is used is is, uh, parousian. It means uh, showing up. It means appearing or coming. And it implies physical presence. Not just some kind of spiritual appearing, but physical presence. God in Christ will come near. That's one of the key tenets of New Testament faith when we're coming to think about the end, how the story ends. Now, I need to say here that the, image, the imagery of descent doesn't imply, isn't meant to imply at least, that Jesus is above us now in some kind of spatial sense. As if heaven, I used to think like this as a kid, and it was, I used to think that heaven was just like really, really far away. And it was a real mind bender to me in my sort of early teens when I discovered or somebody told me the universe was infinite. Well, how can sort of, God's really far away, how can he be beyond what's infinite? doesn't make any sense but really Jesus isn't above us in some spatial sense heaven is all around us what we're talking about when we discuss heaven is a a different reality a different dimension of reality within the world that we inhabit so Jesus is actually really close to us now he's just existing in a different dimension and science now and I'm way off base here and way off my own competency but we, we know we don't think any longer in terms of three dimensions alone There are many dimensions that are being explored. And Jesus, heaven exists in a different dimension. That's important because it means heaven isn't far off. Jesus isn't coming from somewhere really far away, returning. But we use the imagery we have, and the imagery here is of descent. Where is he coming from? He's coming from heaven, from God's reality. And in the moment of Jesus' appearance, God's reality and our reality are joined Heaven comes to earth. Earth interlocks fully with heaven. What is he coming for? He's coming to reign. He's coming to rule. He's coming to reign. And he's coming to judge. 
And again, here's something we don't talk about in church. But he will judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. If he's going to reign, he first has to judge. Because evil has to be judged. And a Jesus who just returns and says, and papers over the cracks, when our world is full of such gross injustice, is no good king. But this king will set all things to rights. And in the, New, in the Old and New Testament, when we see image of God's arrival or God's coming, it's often in the context of judgment. Psalm 96, we read this. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. His coming is his coming to judge, to set all things to rights. Tom Wright puts it this way. There will come a day when God will put all wrongs to rights, when all grief will turn to joy. Jesus will be central to that day, which will end with the unveiling of God's new world. There, those who have already died and those who are still alive, will both alike be given renewed bodies to serve God joyfully in his new creation. The first thing we're clear on from the New Testament is that Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he will restore what's been lost. God is not going to dispense with his creation. He's not going to rip it up and start again or create some floaty reality for us to float in. Eternally, This is heaven and earth joined. This is life as it was truly intended to be. Second thing we find is that Jesus will be victorious. It says, uh, there will be, uh, verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. We'll certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Imagery here soaked in military imagery. The picture here is of victory. The king arriving and there being a a salute, a trumpet salute. The archangels also uh, involved. Their voices are added in. This is a, a victorious king returning to his creation. This is a picture of victory. Victory over what? Victory over death. Victory over sin. Victory over Satan. Victory over evil. Victory over sickness. Victory over cancer. Victory over broken relationships. Victory over isolation. Victory over brokenness. Victory over child abuse. Victory over poverty. Can you taste it? He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Thirdly, we will be with him forever. It says, and this is perhaps where we get most confused. After that, verse 17, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. 
Now the picture here is of Jesus returning with those who he has raised, who have died, who have fallen asleep in him. Returning with them from heaven and being met by us in the air. And it sounds a bit like the theology of the rapture of, of, of God's people being sucked up to some other reality and everybody else being left behind. But actually, that's not the picture at all. Again, an image is being used here and the image is being taken from Roman culture. See, what would happen is if a, an emperor or a king made a visit to one of his colonies, maybe a visit after battle, some kind of victorious appearance, what would happen is that the whole colony led by the elders and the governors of that place, would go out to meet with the emperor before the emperor arrived. The emperor would come with his army or with his entourage and everyone would go outside the city and what would they do? They'd meet the emperor outside the city and then they'd go back into the city. So the destination is the place the people have come from. The key point is that the final destination is where they came from not where they meet the emperor. The destination is not the air. The destination is the ground, God's renewed heaven and earth. And we go out to meet Jesus as he comes back to welcome him in as the victorious king. And the final picture is the most important one. We will be with the Lord forever. This is the key idea. That the result of Jesus coming again is union with God forever. Not just a personal union with God, not just you and I seeing him face to face, although what an incredible picture. You know, we, we try, don't we? We grope around sometimes in our faith. We're struggling to make it through the day sometimes. We're struggling to hold on to hope. We're trying to understand what it might be to walk with Jesus and sometimes it feels like he's close and sometimes it just feels like he's so distant and we can be so deeply disappointed but you know there's going to come a day when you see Jesus think about that that's what I want you to do today you know we've got our head in the disappointments of today in the hopelessness and we need to see it we can't can't blind ourselves to what we see in the world, what the brokenness we see in our own lives. The things we expected for our lives that just have we haven't seen yet. The hopes that are yet unfulfilled. The, the people who we loved who are just wandering away from God. Whatever it is for us, whatever we're carrying in hearts, we don't want to blind ourselves to that. But do you know there's a reality more real than that? Do you know that's not the deepest truth? That's not the, that's not the foundation you know, if you set your life's foundation in the disappointments of today, you're going to be blown around by every wind of disappointment. We need to get our head in the clouds. We need to get our head in the heavens. Because there's a day coming when we'll see Jesus. I believe what we'll see in his eyes is deep compassion and extraordinary love and acceptance. Every anxiety, every tear will be wiped away. I think I'll do some crying first. And maybe you will too. But this is where we're headed, church. This is to whom we're headed. And it's not just a momentary thing. We're going to be with him forever. That's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. This is where our hope is resting. So what? I close with this. So what? Before we take communion together. What does this mean for us today? Paul finishes with this. I love this phrase. Verse 18. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. I, I don't care if you remember a single thing I've said. I just want you to know that I want you to be encouraged. I want two things for you this morning. I want you to be encouraged. That, that is to say, I want you to receive courage. I want you to take courage. You know you have to take it. Take it now. And I want you to receive hope. I want us to be a place where we're encouraging each other, where it's actually not, you know, when people talk about heaven, about God's reality, about what Jesus is about to do, that we don't assume that they're being cliche. That we, 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 wow, thank you for, we say, thank you for pointing me toward something bigger and something better. You know, where it's okay to do that, where we can do that in a way that isn't patronizing, but is, is deeply rich and full of hope. I want you to receive courage and hope. I want you to understand that the Christian story is a story of hope, that the church is to be a people of hope. And what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do today is to give hope. I believe he wants to deposit, to impart hope today for people who've become hopeless because we live in a hopeless uh, culture at times. But I'm saying today there is hope because Jesus has been raised from the dead because he is gonna raise with him everyone who is in Christ and we will meet him and we will be with him forever. I'm just going to pray.